Hello and welcome to another edition of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard, and today we have a very special treat for you. Our guest is Scott Harrison. He is the founder of Charity Water. It is perhaps one of the greatest and most widely respected charities that provides clean water in underserved communities across the globe. You can read more about that by clicking on any of the links in the show notes to the Charity Water website. But Scott has an amazing story of redemption, an amazing story of turning his life around. He used to be a club promoter. We're going to talk to him about that. We're also going to talk to him about what his day-to-day life is like, how he is able to make a charity work that gives a 100% of your donations directly to the communities that need it. A hundred percent. He's going to explain that, so make sure you stay tuned for that. But first, I just want to let you know, if you want to see us live, that's me and John. John is is working on a new book right now, and he is touring some of the concepts from the book. It's a very exciting, very different kind of show. You can check that out at teshmusic.com. I'll be there. If you like the radio show, if you like the podcast, if you like piano music if you like john's music it is a great show to go see he's playing some bigger venues some smaller venues the place to see that again is teshmusic.com there is a link to that in the show notes we would love to have you there as always if you want to find us online it's facebook.com slash john tesh or at john tesh on twitter uh again all of that stuff is linked in the show notes but without further ado here is my interview with scott harrison founder of charity water we're here with scott harrison uh scott thank you so much for being a part of the podcast Thanks so much for having me on. It's a real honor. Uh, you, I mean, in addition to uh, having a whole career before you started this, you're, you, started, uh, you started Charity Water. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Uh, we're a nonprofit uh, on a mission to bring clean water to everybody in the world. Uh, we've been at it for 11 years. We're based in New York City and just trying to end this this huge problem that one in every 10 people alive is drinking dirty water that wow. uh that could kill them wow uh and and how did you get like how did you get involved in the global water crisis why do you care about why do you care about i mean i that sounds a little callous i care about it i've run i've run a couple of marathons for team world vision for their well building thing so i i do care about it but i want to know what it is that drew you to it well, it's definitely a roundabout way. Uh, I, I was a club promoter for, for 10 years. My first career in New York City from uh, the age of about 19 to 29, uh, 28, was uh, uh, getting people drunk every night. That's, uh, the, that's an obvious transition. <laughs> you yeah. You know, well, you know, it started out with a very conservative Christian childhood. Uh, there was a carbon monoxide gas leak in our home when I was four that almost killed all of us. Wow. Uh, my mom was the only one that never recovered. So she grew up, uh, or, or as I grew up, um, I was taking care of a mom who was an invalid. And, you know, the, the good Christian kid playing piano every Sunday in the church. Mm-hmm. And then at 18, I just act out the classic rebellion narrative, give the finger to my parents, give the finger to anything religious or, or you know, reeking of the religious establishment. Mm-hmm move to New York City and begin to live for myself. And uh, that lasted 10 years, led me down a path of uh, extreme debauchery and hedonism, uh, massive drug use, gambling, pornography addiction, strip club addiction. Uh, I mean, uh, one of of the worst people that you would have ever met. Uh, Although my life looked amazing from the outside, I I was dating girls on the cover of magazines and driving Mm -hmm. a BMW and flying private uh, on other people's jets to, you know, grand, uh, to to F1 and and to, you know, openings and 
in fashion weeks around the world. So uh, it, it was really, uh, it was after a decade of living selfishly for only myself that I kind of woke up, uh, had this cathartic experience on this decadent, opulent vacation and realized that there would never be enough. Um, there would never be enough girls. There'd never be enough money. Uh, somebody would always have a better watch and a better car and a better job. And I was in the endless pursuit of more that would leave me uh, completely broken at the end of my life. And I realized that I was the worst person I knew. And if I continued down this selfish path, my legacy and my tombstone would read, here lies a selfish man who's gotten millions of people wasted over the course of his life. And mm. I, I don't know that anybody wants that on their tombstone. So no. <laughs> I, I made a change. Yeah. And, and being a pretty radical guy, uh, came back to a lost faith, I, I think in a very different way as an adult, maybe yeah. than what had been force fed to me as a child. I came back to a lost morality and uh, I sold everything that I owned and uh, wanted to make my life, uh, at least for one year, look exactly the opposite. I, I, I actually asked myself that question, what would the 180 degree opposite of everything in my life be? And uh, that led to me, you know, never smoking again and quitting drugs and mm. never gambling again, never looking at porn again, just really swearing off all the vices and, and then applying to volunteer for a variety of humanitarian missions. And you know, I thought the opposite of my life would be service to others for a year uh, and a year of pure virtuous living. And the, the, the sad thing was that even after I liquidated my life and began to apply to these humanitarian organizations, no one would take me because of my past. Right. Perhaps wow. Surprisingly. But, you know, how would a club promoter that's capable of getting a thousand people to queue outside a velvet rope be in any way useful for your you know, serious hum humanitarian work in Sudan uh, or I Malawi? I guess, but I mean, I would, I would, I would want you there just so you could put together the fundraiser if for no other yeah. reason. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't think people had that much vision at the time. You know, yeah. eventually, I, I was fortunate. One organization said uh, that I could join them, provided I donate uh, five hundred dollars a month to the organization and go live in Liberia uh, post Civil War, which was the poorest country in the world at that time. Wow with no electricity, no running water in the country, no sewage system in the country. And that, that was a group called Mercy Ships. And they took me on as their uh, volunteer photojournalist, although I, I joked that um, wasn't, it was more than volunteer since I was actually paying them <laughs> exactly. a year for the pleasure of volunteering. <laughs> and that led me to West Africa, where I saw many, many things, experienced extreme poverty for the first time, and saw human beings drinking dirty water. I uh, saw children risking their lives, mm. drinking water so dirty. I wouldn't let my dog drink uh, water. I would yank a cow away from uh, thinking that, that, you know, it would injure them and, and watching, you know, little, little girls uh, drink this water just became my fight. It was the, the one thing um, I saw leprosy. I saw cleft lips and cleft palates and people burned during the war. I saw all sorts of uh, intense suffering. But dirty water was just the one thing that wasn't okay on my watch. I just mm -hmm. didn't understand how a guy like me could sell Voss water for $10 a bottle in nightclubs and uh, right. a tenth of the planet simply because of where they're born is risking their lives 
uh, drinking bad water. And that's that kind of became my mission. And uh, that's that's an incredible, incredible thing. I mean, I've um, I, I've seen some of those images that you're talking about, and it is it is very motivating. Like I, I it made me run a marathon. Uh, it made me want to contribute to charities that do build these wells, because like you said, uh, without water, literally all of your human processes don't work. And you're you're generating you're propagating disease by having by having bad water. Yeah, there was a statistic from the World Health Organization uh, said 52% of all disease throughout the developing world, you know, throughout these countries that mm. some people call the third world, all it's 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 due to bad water and lack of sanitation. So you could make half the sick people well just by providing clean water to toilet. Uh, it, it seems so basic. You know, if you want to play doctor, if you really care about health, don't go build health clinics provide people with clean drinking water. Well, yeah, it's an ounce of prevention is worth is worth a pound of cure. Um, so so did you did you choose Mercy Ships simply because they were the only ones that took you or was there something about yeah. their mission? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, beggars can't be choosers. Uh. I mean, it, it turned out to be an unbelievably rich experience and uh, I would I would recommend it to others and uh, wound up doing two years actually instead of the one that I'd signed up for. But mm. yeah, they they, they just uh, I, I, I had one option. <laughs> and I right. took it. That's that's incredible. Okay, so you you come back, you decide you you know you you've you've eschewed this club promoter lifestyle. You come back and you decide that this is a problem that you need to focus on. What is the first step that you take upon getting back? I mean, I, I'm assuming did you stay in Liberia or did you come back to the United States after your time with Mercy Ships? Yeah, I came back to New York City. Uh, so I was 30 years old. I was completely broke as. Uh, a, nightclub promoters uh, are not very good at saving money. We're yeah. very good at spending money, yeah. more than we have, but not great at saving it. And B, all the money that I had, I'd actually given to Mercy Ships and the people that I'd met uh, in West Africa. Mm. So I came back broke. Uh, my old club promoter took me in, said that I could stay on his closet floor uh, in Soho, New York City. And and uh, and I I did sleep there uh, on a walk-in closet floor for a while and and use his living room as our first office and I was I was so passionate I was running around with a laptop every day making you know eight to ten presentations showing people the photos that I had taken mm. in Liberia showing them children uh, drinking bad water saying we need to do something about this this is an emergency this is not okay mm-hmm. uh, and. And what I realized during that town time was that my friends were cynical and skeptical about charity. There was this huge disenchantment. There was a lack of trust. And I learned that there was real data behind that. 42% of Americans polled said that uh, they don't trust charities. And 70% of Americans polled by NYU said they think charities waste money. And I learned that, you know, if we were going, we, I, the the organization, if we were going to make a a significant impact on the global water crisis, if we were going to get people clean water at any sort of meaningful scale, Mm -hmm. we would need a completely new paradigm. Uh, we, we would need a, to reimagine, to reinvent charity. We would need to reach out to the 42% of people who were not giving, who were skeptical and say, We've solved your problems. We've built a different kind of organization. Take another look and please join us. And that's really the vision behind Charity Water. You know, the word charity means love. 
Mm. Uh, I remember doing word studies in the beginning. It's, it comes from caritas in the Latin. It, it, it means to help your neighbor in need and get nothing in return. And I thought, that's a beautiful concept, but it's become tainted. It's become maimed by public perception, by scandal, by uh, mismanagement of funds. And it shouldn't be. You know, we need more love in the world. We need more help your neighbor in need mm. in the world. So the, the real vision was, could I, uh, could I come up with a different kind of charity that would speak to those objections, that would speak to the people who weren't giving, who were cynical, and say, hey, take another look. Trust us. Uh, give, uh, give this another look, give it another shot. And maybe, uh, maybe we can transform the way that you think about generosity, the way that you think about charity. So there were really three big ideas of, of how we might do that. The first was to solve and address the problem that people have with money flow. The most common objection I would hear is how much of my money will actually reach those people? Yeah. You know, it costs exactly $38 a month, you know, to give a child everything they need for the next eight years. There was just this, there was this disbelief around money and, and, and overheads. And, and I thought, well, what if we, what if we broke up the overhead out of the, the public funding? What if we actually opened up two bank accounts and were able to make a very public promise and say that a hundred percent of all donations in perpetuity would go directly to help human beings get clean water, to build water projects. And in the second bank account, we'd raise the overhead separately somehow. But the public would never pay for a penny of my salary or the office or the copier or the toner or flights. 100% of their money would go directly to give people clean water. Um, that was idea number one. Idea number two was, okay, well, now if we have two separately audited bank accounts, uh, we've separated out the overhead and the public's not paying for it. Now we can actually prove these dollars and show people where they landed. We could do really interesting things following the money. Mm. Uh, and and we, were, uh, we were fortunate to start the organization the same year Google Maps was born. And we said, you know, Google's job now just given us a free place where we can put every charity water project that we're ever going to fund up in a, in a transparent way for the public to see. If we had 100 wells, anybody should be able to go buy a GPS unit for 50 bucks from the local Best Buy, pull down a data set, and actually go and visit those 100 wells. So proof became, became pillar number two. And then the third thing was we, we, we would build this beautiful brand. We would build an epic and imaginative brand that, that, that would would walk away from the shame and the guilt that so many charities peddle their wares with. You know, some people might remember those leftover commercials from the eighties with Sally Struthers, you know, Sally Struthers. Yeah, you, there you is. Yeah, you know? of course it was kids in Africa in slow motion, raising sad eyes to lock yep. with the camera as flies landed on their yep. face and the 800 number striped across the screen and it works, right? It makes you feel so ashamed of what you might have that you pull out your credit card and you give, but you would never tell a friend about that charity, right? You would yeah. never wear the t-shirt. The word of mouth is, uh, is zero from right. something like that. And that's the old way. You know, it would be as if Nike marketed, you know, their products using shame and guilt. Imagine if Nike told America, America, you are fat and ugly. <laughs> 
Turn off the TV, you idiots. You know, put the bowl of Fritos away and go for a run. Yeah. You know? In in your Nikes. Just do it. Oh, and by the way, yeah, please, please wear our products, right? It just wouldn't work, and that's not what Nike does. In fact, Nike does the exact opposite. Nike says there is greatness within you. We believe in you. You don't have legs. We believe you can run a marathon. You don't have arm. We believe you can still play basketball, right? And and greatness is within you. You can overcome the odds. You can overcome adversity. Now please buy our T-shirts because we believe in you. You know, yeah. just do it. And, you know, we, we have just tried to, to apply that principle to the way that we have messaged, the way that we think about our donor community. Uh, it's messaging around hope and opportunity. It's an invitation to a party. You know, the first three letters of fundraising are fun. It should be fun to be generous. It should be fun to contribute your time and your talent and your money in the service of others. It's a joy. It's a blessing, not an obligation, not giving out of debt or guilt or shame. Right. You know, you hear this, uh, this expression, give back makes me want to throw up in my mouth. Every time (laughs) I hear about company, you know, talking about giving back, it's as if they've, they've plundered and pillaged to such extent that it's finally time to throw some scraps to the poor. (laughs) You know, imagine me sitting with you and taking your phone like I snatch your phone and you say, give it back. Why don't we just frame giving in the positive? Right. Our our company's giving campaign, you know, our family's giving philosophy, right. Giving in the positive, giving because Mm. it's a joy and a blessing and we can give out of our abundance and we can give out of our talents with no strings attached, not because we have to, but because we want to. So that was kind of sorry. That was a rant. But it was also it was also the most cynical charity CEO I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> well, you know, uh, we, we wanted to invite people to a great party where they, they contribute and they see people getting clean water. Um, and then, you know, the, I guess pillar four, uh, you know, if, if the house had, you know, four corners would be um, to use local partners, you know, not send anybody from the Western world over to Africa or India to, to dig or drill wells. And, you know, we, we believe for the work in these countries to be sustainable, to be culturally appropriate, it must be led by the locals in those organizations. So our role could be reaching out to a cynical public. Um, See, so, you know, it, it's funny you say I'm cynical. I think that's the advantage we've had is because I don't hang out with charity people. I don't hang out with institutional philanthropists. I hang out with people who aren't giving, who have all yeah. the excuses. And, you know, we're trying to say, you're missing out. Your cynicism is robbing your life. You're depriving yourself of blessing and of joy because of your cynicism of the, of the system. And it's been really fun to hear time and time again uh, that our supporters, you know, for, for so many of them, it's the first time they have ever given to a charity. Sometimes in 40 years of life, sometimes 60-year-olds will say that. Wow. You know, this is the first time that I felt like I could trust, that it felt different to me. So give away 100% of the money, prove to people what we did with that money, build an epic and an imaginative and inspiring brand that looked more like Nike or Apple or Tesla or Virgin and use local partners to actually get the work done. And, uh, you know, some of those things actually sound so basic, but it was just really novel 11 years ago when we started. Well, okay, so so let me ask you this. It does sound basic, except for one thing. 
you're giving away 100% of the money. How do you... I mean, I know you have separate bank accounts, but how do you fill bank account number two? How do you cover the overhead if all of the money that, say, somebody's going to give on your website is going to be going directly to the wells in Africa or India? Yeah. Well, if, if, you, if you just kind of start at the beginning and fast forward. So we, we grew so quickly... Um, because of this 100% model, because I think of the you know the four pillars of the organization, um, we we you know had eight years of consecutive growth: two million, six million, nine million, sixteen million, twenty-three million, twenty-eight million, thirty-five million, forty-five million. You know we've now raised a third of a billion dollars from over a million donors uh, that have that have come together to support clean water. The overhead is paid for by 130 families, hmm. so 130 families pay for 80 staff, the office, the flights, uh, the copy machine, and a million plus donors have gotten a pure play, the most pure giving experience. Those 130 families, uh, there are a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, There are a lot of entrepreneurs. It's the founders of Facebook and Twitter and uh, Spotify, uh, key executives at Apple. Um, It's Depeche Mode that helps pay for our What? It's actors, it's football quarterbacks. It's just this motley crew of 130 visionary, generous families that say, we don't need 100% of our money to go. We trust you. We want to pay for the accountants. We want to pay for Mm. the water engineers. We want to pay for your flight, Scott, as you go out and tell the story and, and build the organization. And that's how we do it. So a very small group. We call those... Uh, investors or those those investing donors, we call them the well, um, and it's really this incredible group of people that make this unique hundred percent model possible. And, that, and are these people that you met as from your days as a promoter? None of them. None of no. them. No. Wow. Oh, so so this is just all you grinding it out. We have a great team. Oh my gosh, we have uh, we have uh, I think seventy nine people you know here at the organization now in, in New York City who are who are working to uh, both uh, steward and grow those relationships mm. to to make the giving meaningful for not only those one hundred and thirty families and their children but really the million donors uh, around the world you know from a hundred countries now. So no, I, I it's 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 certainly a part of what I do, which is making sure we continue to grow that group from 130 families to 140 families uh, so that we can support the growth uh, and continue this 100% model. Wow. But we, we have an amazing team. And, and even that community themselves is constantly helping itself grow. So the, the well members themselves are introducing us to their friends and saying, hey, go meet so-and-so. Uh, I, I think you know their family would love to join us and become family number 131 or 132. I mean, that's incredible, and you're saying that this is all. That this is to your point earlier, where, you know, if you use the guilt model, people are not as motivated to be brand evangelists, and you want brand evangelists for for charity water. Absolutely, I mean, you know, for for nine years, the organization had a zero marketing budget. You know, the mm-hmm. entire thing we we raised a quarter of a billion dollars through word of mouth. Wow. It was people telling their friends about this thing that they were a part of that felt new and fresh and different and inspirational and transparent. And it was, it was a set of values that, that aligned with theirs or, or certainly what they, they believed a charity, uh, they believed the values that a charity should hold. And it was just growing like wildfire, um, just through word of mouth. People would tell people and, 
um, you know, obviously a lot of a lot of speaking and a lot of uh, media. You know, we would tell our story in the magazines and in the newspapers and on TV whenever we could. That uh, we would get in front of audiences and just tell the story. Um, one of the one of the the, the most uh, powerful principles that I think has led to this explosive growth has been that we never make ourselves the hero. Mm. Uh, and this is there's a guy named Don Miller um, out of Nashville. Blue, blue like jazz. You blew like jazz, yeah. So Don uh, started a company a couple of years ago called Story Brand, and uh, really does amazing work helping people find their stories. And you know, Don and I have been friends for a long time, but he's actually given really good language to this. That's much better than than anything I could have done. And and he said, you know, so many. If you think about the hero's journey, most organizations make themselves the hero in the story. Right. Right. It would be as if Charity Water was saying, "Look how awesome we are." You know, we've given eight and a half million people clean water in 26 countries, right? We're giving 3,500 people clean water every single day, right? We're crushing it. We're transparent. We're, we, have, we have been so intentional for 11 years at celebrating everyone except ourselves. We look at our role as the guide. We are the guide in the story. We are the mentor. The heroes are our donors. The heroes are our volunteers that are passionately out there selling lemonade uh, like you, running marathons or races, raising awareness and money for the cause. The heroes are our local partners in Ethiopia. There are 300 people working on charity water projects today in Ethiopia. Our well drillers drill 29 out of 30 days every single month. Wow. They take one day off because they're trying to maximize a nine-month rainy, uh, dry season because when it rains for three months, all the work stops, and they want to help right. as many people as possible. So we're, we're kind of in the hero worship, and we're never the hero. We're constantly looking to celebrate the six-year-old girl in Virginia who mailed in her allowance of $8.15 with a note saying, I don't want kids to die of bad water. You know. Nora from Virginia is the hero. The 89-year-old named Nona who donated her birthday and, and didn't throw herself a birthday party, didn't accept any gifts, and wanted her birthday to help other people have clean water. We celebrate Nona. And yeah, it, it just uh, it, it's actually different than you know than than how most organizations or companies market. They normally put themselves at the center and talk about their achievements. Mm. We talk about our community's achievements. That's, I mean, that's an incredible way of, again, to your point, of building brand evangelists. If you feel like you are a part of a community that's bigger than yourself, not just somebody that's doing something for an organization, as long as you know, it becomes about the community as opposed to being about the organization itself, which I think is, is kind of beautiful. Yeah, and that, and that's cultural here. You know, we we we've done campaigns. I remember one campaign years back where we picked 250 supporters. We shut down the entire office for a day, and we made 250 personalized videos. Our entire staff did nothing else except make make personalized videos thanking our supporters. Wow. And we intentionally didn't pick our rich supporters. We intentionally didn't pick our million dollar supporters. We picked supporters that had sent in $11, hmm. you know, that had done a campaign that raised a few hundred dollars. And we tried to honor them uh, and thank them and, and be grateful. You know, we have, we have uh, this cultural document at Charity Water, our values and then our isms. And you know, I think so many organizations have values that mm – -hmm. I mean, Enron had values of, of integrity, <laughs> for example, right? Yeah, so yes. So our, our isms are these things that, you know, you know 
you know you're living out your values if these things are happening. And one of our isms is we're grateful people and we're constantly looking for ways to demonstrate that gratitude to our communities, to our local partners. Uh, you know, whether that's taking all of our well drillers out and throwing me a big meal or honoring the, the six-year-old girl uh, in person and showing up and, you know, speaking at her school because she did 12 lemonade stands, in, wow. including one in the rain for charity water and, wow. and raised a few thousand dollars. Do you so, sell a lot of lemonade in the rain? I feel like that's a hot weather. You know, this girl is incredible. She actually sold $5,600 worth of lemonade Whoa. in 12 stands. And at her 12th lemonade stand, this is in Vancouver, at her 12th lemonade stand, she convinced a local band to perform next to her lemonade stand on the sidewalk to attract lemonade buyers. <laughs> Unbelievable. This is, this is a budding entrepreneur. Yeah, what is her name? She's going to be, I mean, invest in whatever she's doing. Maddie. <laughs> Maddie, okay. The, if you know a Maddie in Canada, just give her a little bit of money and tell her to grow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, so okay, so uh, you've got this. You've got this. This different perspective. You've been able to, with transparency and with celebrating your community, you've been able to build uh, charity water from something that you were doing in your buddy's living room into a multinational organization. At this point, um, what made you decide? You've written a book. What made you decide to put it all down on paper? You know, a, a bunch of things happened uh, for me, if I'm really honest about it. I turned 40, the organization turned 10, uh, and I had two kids. And, you know, if, if you'd asked me five years in, because, you know, people would say, oh, maybe you should write a book about your experience. I'm like, we're still living this experience. I mean, I don't even mm -hmm. know that Charity Water is going to exist next year. Right. Right. And I think, um, you know, reaching that decade mark and looking back on, we're, we're going to be around. You know, we're, mm -hmm. we're really, in some ways, just getting warmed up. And we mm -hmm. feel like the journey is, we're at the very beginning of this long and hopefully really purposeful journey that, that ends with hundreds of millions of people getting clean water, not just the eight and a half million people that we've helped. Um, I think I really wanted to share uh, my story in, in probably a much more vulnerable way than I'd be able to do in a podcast or, you know, on stage, right. uh, in, in that it might inspire other people. And I think, you know, you hear about purpose a lot. People are looking for their purpose and we hear about purpose-driven lives. And I think a lot of people just feel a little lost. Yeah. And a lot of people feel like their past has uh, dictates their future. And what I would hope people might take from my story is no one is beyond redemption. I mean, it is truly never too late. If a coked out nightclub promoter scumbag, you know, who is the worst person in 10 years, um, you know, could actually, you know, change and, you know, go raise a third of a billion dollars for, for clean water. Like you are, you are definitely not as bad off as I was, right. you know? So I would really hope that, that reading that some people might be inspired and say, well, what might I be able to do? And, you know, look, I think some people hopefully will read the book and, and get excited about charity water and joining our mission, mm -hmm. uh, and, and being a, a part of our, of our community. But really it's wider than that. It's a, it's a much more expansive hope that, Somebody reading it might say, well, there's this thing that always bugged me. Maybe it was world hunger. Maybe it's you know, a justice issue. Maybe it's the fact that people are going to bed without a roof over their head. You know, and, and that's not okay on my watch. And now I feel like I have some of the tools and the values and the ideas where I could go and, and turn this thing that is just deep in my gut that's not okay and actually 
do something about it, either through starting an organization or partnering with another organization. So I, I guess I would hope that you know there would be they would inspire people both personally and then that there would be this movement of of more expansive generosity and compassion that would be birthed as as people you know go through a go through this experience that's and that's amazing um, well that's i mean first of all it's an incredibly inspiring story and i i couldn't agree more we we've, we've talked about on our on a radio show a lot about how uh, how good how good charity is for you so that you know when you spend an hour volunteering it's it has an actual relaxing effect on your neurotransmitters it actually it actually helps your brain it's it's like taking a valium it will actually calm you down uh, in a way that that other activities don't necessarily do so it, it is we are built from a biological standpoint we are built to be a part of a community and to help others and um and and to your point i think a lot of people don't even know where to start with that but this this story seems like well, it's inspiring me to be more like that. I hope, hopefully, it's it's working that way for our audience. Um, I I just want to say once again, this thank you so much for telling your story. Uh, it seems like you've accomplished a lot, and I don't want to let you go without talking about how you are able to have two kids, run the charity the way that you do. I'm assuming there's a lot of travel involved. You had to find time to write a book. I want to know what your process is. What does a day in the life of Scott Harrison look like? It's pretty varied, so I'll say that, and I think that's that's one of the things that that has kept me really going and interested. You know, now starting year twelve at Charity Water, mm. um, before my kids were born, there was a lot of travel. I did ninety eight flights, so I got on ninety eight airplanes in that year, and you know, this work has taken me now all around the world. I've been to sixty nine countries. Uh, I've been to Ethiopia thirty separate times. Uh, I, I should say all in coach. Charity Water has never bought a business class ticket for myself or anyone else in the organization uh, in in eleven years. So, you know, there's there's a, a real value of stewardship that that we hold dear. Um, but but it's allowed me to experience India and Bangladesh and Nepal and Ethiopia. And uh, so there are there are days when I am out in the field with our local partners. There are seasons where I'm bringing donors and I'm saying, I don't need you to drill a well. I don't need you in this hole, but I need you to come back so inspired by what you've seen and become advocates for the people that you net, met. I need you to give them a voice. Mm. Um, there are also very boring days of just meetings of, you know, 14 internal meetings, uh, where it, this isn't the stuff that, that lights me up. I, I don't, uh, I don't love the management stuff. I don't love the necessarily the one-on-ones. Mm. Um, I've, I've been designing myself more and more out of that. I have an incredible COO at charity water who's been here over seven years. Um, who's really, you know, been been taking up much more of the day to day. Um, there are uh, there are speeches. You know, I'm in Boston giving a a 60 minute speech to 10,000 people next week uh, at a marketing conference, which is which is really amazing to be able to to tell a story. Um, and then know that some portion of those people are going to respond, they're going to act, and that you know, human lives will be saved through a speech. Um, and I love doing that. I love telling the story. And again, you know, me on stage, it, it starts with a little bit about my story, but then it so quickly morphs into all of the stories of our beneficiaries, of our volunteers, of the kids selling lemonade, of our of our donors supporting the overhead. Um, I love the storytelling. Um, I live seven minutes from our headquarters in Tribeca. So we, my wife and I are in a 1,200 square foot apartment in New York City with two kids and it's all we need. And 
the nice thing about a small apartment is is uh, you don't buy a lot of things. Yeah. And uh, you know, you're, you've got your couch, your kitchen table, and your bed, and the, the kids' cribs and beds, and you're done. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I'm able to see my kids in the morning and night when I'm in town, which is really important to me because I'm on the road about 30% of the time. Mm. My my son is now getting old enough that he could travel with me. So uh, I had him in Sacramento recently, put him in a in a 2,000 person audience, and said. You know, this is where daddy goes to tell the story yeah. and like, please be quiet. <laughs> um, I just need you to be quiet for 40 minutes. Sure enough, 10 minutes in, I hear this daddy, you know, <laughs> from the, the back of the middle. Uh, but you know, he's coming with me to Atlanta. I'm, I'm doing a, a big, uh, faith-based leadership conference, 12,000, you know, pastors. And I'm going to yeah. put, bring my son with me and just, just for a, a 18 hour trip, uh, and you know, stay at a holiday inn. Throw him, throw him next to me in bed. He can come to the conference, hang out a little bit, and then we'll jump on a flight home. So, you know, having this kind of work-life integration is really That's... important. I, I worked with my wife for nine years at Charity Water. She was the second employee. She was the creative director for nine years. Now she's uh, she's taken the last couple of years just to to take care of the kids. And right. as they start going into school, she's she's thinking about what's next for her and is working on. Um, actually an online business about branding and marketing and teaching people how to better tell their story. That's, that's incredible. So sorry, that, that probably wasn't the, the, you know, the, the normal answer, but it's just, it's just so varied. You know, today I'm in the office, um, doing some podcasts and some press, and then yeah. I'm going to be in, you know, last week I was in six cities in, in six days. Normally people say like, Oh, I eat oatmeal every day and I spend the first hour writing. This, this that was a whole another level of of work life balance, which I you know I I try to take my kids to to events that I do, um, but I I I struggle with this. Has inspired me to integrate my kids more into into the work that I'm doing because um, because I I mean that sounds amazing. I would love to to hear my kid from the back of the audience just say, "Hey, daddy, that that that's exciting." I th- I feel like as much as you wanted your kid to stay quiet, that might that yeah no, hey, daddy's might, better. I might be projecting that as a little bit of a highlight hey, for you. Hey, Daddy, hey, Daddy was just yeah. fine. It was a highlight. I uh, just want to thank you once again, Scott Harrison, for, for being a part of this, for telling your story. And uh, if people want to follow up with you, what is the best way? What is the, the number one way that you want people to, to get in touch or to, to learn more about what you do? Yeah, I think they could go to charitywater.org um, or thirstbook.com. And you know, one of the cool things about the book is I, I turned over the whole advance to Charity Water. 100% of uh, of mm. all my author proceeds will go to the organization, so I won't wow. make a penny from the book. So actually, by uh, by getting a copy of Thirst, you're supporting our work, uh, not supporting me. And you know, I really would hope that this this book would go out and do a lot of good. That it would inspire people. That it would give them some of the tools, uh, maybe actually to to unlock some of that that purpose in their lives and. Um, if they are social entrepreneurs, if they are involved in charities, you know some of the the tips and tricks just to maybe be a little more effective. And and you know a lot of it is the things that we we really messed up at. I mean, I, people um, people that read early copies of the book were like, I can't believe you said that. I, mean, mm-hmm. I can't believe you told people. You know, so I really wanted it to be vulnerable. This isn't just a story about um, you know an up and to the right movement. Um, there are lawsuits. There are guns. There you know there's definitely some some, some much more risky stuff, but I, I wanted it to be truthful. Uh, I think, you know, we, we respond to, to truth and we, uh, we've seen this, you know, there, there are episodes of us gloriously failing in this, yeah. failing our supporters, failing, uh, failing ourselves. 
and you know, I would hope that, that, that even that might encourage people. So yeah, they could just go to thirstbook.com and, um, we'd, we'd love the support for the project. Uh, I, I appreciate that. We will put a link to those, uh, to those websites in the show notes. So you can click right there if you are listening to this, uh, on any kind of device. And I would also just like to point out if you have been inspired by this conversation, Scott has inspired you without telling the guns part of the story. So get excited <laughs> about that and also check out the book to get the real deal. Thank you guys so much for listening. As Scott mentioned, he has a brand new book out called Thirst. Go ahead and check that out in the show notes. You can buy that pretty much everywhere where books are sold. And there's an amazing deal where 100% of those proceeds from the book are going to support the communities that Charity Water helps. So please do that. Please don't forget to do that. It's a great book. It's a great story. I I mean, I, I hope you've enjoyed listening to the interview. If you have, go deeper. Get the book. Once again, I want to remind all of you guys that if you want to see us live, Tesh Music. Com. If you want to keep in touch with us, Facebook.com slash John Tesh is where John is. On Twitter, Facebook, or Twitter, his John's Twitter handle, Twitter handle is at John Tesh. On Instagram, uh, at John Tesh underscore IFYL. Also, if you are interested in me, uh, Facebook.com slash Gib Gerard, at Gib Gerard on all of the relevant social media platforms. If you like our show, please rate, comment, and subscribe. We are getting ready to push more podcast episodes out. But they only make sense to keep doing them if you guys are listening to them and you tell your friends. If you don't like the show, just stop listening, stop subscribing, and move on. Please don't tell anybody you hate the show. Or do. I don't know. It's, it, you do you. I don't know why you listen this long if you hate it. So once again, thank you guys for listening. And check out all of Scott Harrison's stuff. Links in the show notes.